From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Bilana Aragetti. And I'm Erica Davis. This is Pod Culture, a podcast about arts and culture on campus and beyond. On today's episode, we're talking about something interesting we've noticed in a lot of movies and cartoons we loved as kids. All your favorite villains are gay. Spoiler! Or at least, a lot of them are queer-coded. A lot of times it has to do with outfit and personality. Why is Maleficent scary when she walks into Sleeping Beauty? It's because she's the only one wearing black. She's the only one with dramatic shoulders. She's the only one wearing makeup that looks that good. And she looks evil because we're told that that's what looks evil. But she clearly puts a lot of thought into her appearance. You know what I mean? That was Medill sophomore Jude Kramer. Jude has spent a lot of time watching and analyzing films from Disney to horror. As he's gotten older, he told us that he's thought a lot about how Disney and other studios use queer coding. So what even is queer coding? Like, how do film scholars put together an explanation of what it looks like when assumedly cishet characters have these powerfully queer vibes? My understanding of that term in the context of this conversation is about characters who are not tagged by their films as gay or lesbian or necessarily under anything we might call a queer identity umbrella. But there are strong insinuations based on some stereotypes that might exist in the culture or might feel like generic plot ways in which movies over time, especially when they weren't allowed to say out loud, we're asking you to think about this character as a lesbian, or we're asking you to think about this character as possibly trans. So you wind up with audiences who consciously or not may well be absorbing a character in that light, even though no one has said that or asked them to. That's Nick Davis. He's an associate professor in the English department and the gender and sexuality studies program with a focus in commercial film. Finally, someone with credentials to validate what I knew to be true about Scar. As an anthropomorphic cartoon, he provides more queer representation than most of Netflix's filmography. Back up for a second, Erica. How do you just know that Scar was gay? Like, what traits or actions made you stop and think about the sexuality of an animated lion? Scar has more personality in his pinky finger than the rest of the pride combined. He has sass, he's flamboyant, and those eyes, come on, Nick agrees. You get a character like Scar and Jafar who simultaneously seem incredibly worldly. And that can be one sign of the way that queer coding happens as like that pretentiousness, you know, or facetiousness while at the same time being babyish and childish. I had a similar experience with Corel DeVille, who I'm convinced is queer. First of all, no cishet person, especially in 20th century kids media, will be quite so fanatical about skinning dogs for coats. Remember, this is a genre full of dainty queens, or at least kind princesses. She's bossy, she's physical, she's a terrible driver with poorly dyed hair. She also flounces quite a lot. It's just a bit too over the top to be anything but facetious. Jude says these physical and stylistic cues make Disney's queer coding very obvious. The whole storyline of the evil queen is just, I want to be the prettiest person in the room. And not to say that those are traits that queer people possess, but those are stereotypes of queer people, certainly to be obsessed with the way that we look, to be obsessed with the way that we're presenting ourselves, to be more out there with our fashion sense. I'm just remembering that lyric from Ursula's uh, song, like, don't underestimate the importance of body language. And then out here just shaking her titties, her octopus titties. You know, her outfit is amazing. And Ursula's design is inspired by Divine, the most legendary drag queen of all time, some might say. So, I mean, it's just blatant there that she's meant to look like a drag queen. So yeah, in the outfits, that's a huge part of it. Personality-wise, the example that pops into my head is Hades from Hercules. 
the way that he carries himself, the way that he talks, that snark, that quick wit, those are traits that people heavily associate with gay men for a good reason a lot of the time. But I mean, I think you have to be very, very ignorant of even the existence of queer people to not read into these characters as presenting as queer in those ways. I'm going to call Disney animators out on their lack of creativity. For two villains who are quite literally fire and water to each other, Ursula and Hades sure do seem to have the same billowing hair, curled lips, and black gown. I sense some queer homogenization going on, which begs the question, does Disney distinguish its queer female villains from its queer male villains? It reads to me that the male villains are coming across as gay men, and a lot of the female villains are coming across as drag queens versus queer women. Because it's gay men and drag queens who, for the most part, are also gay men that get this treatment. Whereas the stereotype of queer women is more so overly masculine, more so subdued versus in your face, over the top with it. The stereotype of a butch lesbian. That's not really a character that we see in terms of Disney villains. When we do have a female villain, she is often overly sexual, overly sadistic. And I don't know, I might be reading into that a little too far, but they kind of queer code all the villains in terms of all the characters are sort of hyper feminine. When there are Disney villains that are hyper-masculine, like I'm thinking either Gaston or Clayton, those villains don't read to me as much as queer-coded because sort of their whole plotline is about wanting to get the girl, and you don't get that with a lot of the more blatantly queer-coded villains. So it's pretty clear that Disney has a pattern of queer-coding villains. But when did this start, and why? Disney animators have some collective mental block where they didn't know how to draw two princes kissing? Actually, no. I mean, maybe, but there were rules within the film industry at the time with a lot of topics that weren't allowed to be shown in movies at the federal level. It was called Hayes Code, and it came about during the Great Depression. The code specifically blocked studios from creating characters on the big screen that were openly gay. Until 1968, this code also banned such scandalous subjects as illegal drug traffic, STDs, and indecent dancing. The intention was to make sure films upheld a standard of morality and didn't give America any filthy ideas about how to live. So once those codes kick in around 1934 is when you really see, even by the standards of movies that were being made in the 20s, a shift from some candor and some adventurousness about what you could express about sexuality, about violence, even about things like religion or political sympathies with things like anarchism that became illegal in a film to a much more coded language of implying those things without showing them or briefly depicting them as long as the character who has that identity or executes that crime is clearly punished by the end of the film. Basically, this made it more okay for mainstream media to depict taboo queer lifestyles on screen, as long as audiences aren't actually supposed to root for the gay character. Even though I think villains have more fun. Same here. As a queer woman, I don't know how much I feel legitimately shown by snarky one-dimensional villains who die without ever getting a kiss, but I do think they're more fun to watch, simply because the queer coding tropes we've talked about make characters at least more lively. They're just not accurate to my experience. This begs the question, do queer coded villains count as LGBTQ representation in the media? And if not, is their presence offensive? Professor Sean Griffin, who teaches film and media studies courses at Southern Methodist University, thinks it might be possible for the queer community to reclaim villains on their own terms. I think it starts off with artists trying to come up with ways to hint to audiences, but not be overt about it. So there's deniability, whether that's worries about being arrested for obscenity, uh, censorship, 
issues or even just we want to make a good profit. So we're putting this in here for those people who can read it, but the rest of the audiences are going to be clueless and not catch it or be potentially offended. So we can take their dollars as well. One of the interesting things though, is that as especially gay and lesbian LGBTQ audiences get trained to look for the subtext, to look for the clues, they can start finding clues that were never put there by the artists originally. You didn't mean me to understand this person as gay or lesbian, but I've decided to, and you can't stop me, kind of thing going on. Professor Griffin is also thinking about what seeing these portraits in the media does to children. On the one hand, queer kids seeing someone who reminds them of themselves on screen for the first time might not be a fantastic time for that person to be a villain. On the other hand, the main life lessons in Disney movies usually come across so strong, there's less pressure to justify a villain's downfall. It does have the potential to create an impression on young audiences okay, in terms of here's how men and women are supposed to behave. But again, trying to assume that all children read things the same way is really reductive. You always need to be responsible when you're making stuff, recognizing what the potential is. There's so many different ways of reacting to stuff that it's not just adults that do things differently, that, that kids do stuff differently too. Plus, these days, villains are starting to lose their monopoly on the LGBTQ plus character market. More recent movies are starting to include explicitly queer characters in more positive roles. Although we obviously don't count the three-second cameo by a lesbian couple in Finding Dory, or LeFou coming out in the live-action Beauty and the Beast. As Griffin pointed out, some Disney hero characters might be queer-coded too. Have you ever noticed that Mary Poppins didn't finish out her movie with a man, no matter how hard Bert tried to catch her attention? Still, whether you're noticing it for the first time now or for the 500th time as a film scholar, there's a huge gap between the representative queer identity used in Disney villains and the actuality of a diverse queer community. So why then is the animation studio known for creativity reusing the same tired stereotypes? The difference between a LGBTQ community and an LGBTQ market is that, you know, as a community, you can be fighting for rights and for, you know, healthcare and for employment and, you know, equality and stuff like that. Disney is trying to serve a market where the idea is sort of like, we want your money. And so there tends to be more of an emphasis on those people who have more dollars. So emphasizing usually gay men over lesbians or trans people, white LGBTQ people over queer people of color. As always, follow the money. We'll leave you all with a sneak peek into the hottest debate of our week. After all this talk about queer-coded villains, exaggerated costumes, strong personalities, and homoerotic Disney moments, which cartoon villains came out the hottest? Okay, well, now I'm gonna out myself because earlier I was like, the ones that don't really code as queer to me, like Gaston and Clayton. Gaston and Clayton are hot, sorry. I also think that a lot of the women, when you have a woman as the villain in a Disney movie, she's gonna be really hot a lot of the time. Like I'm thinking, Mother Gothel, I'm thinking Evil Queen prior to Transformation. I'm thinking, I think Ursula's hot, but I know she wasn't meant to be hot. I think she's hot. The same guy that animated Scar animated Gaston, and he said very specifically he was borrowing from also like the vain gay gym bunnies to create that sense of the character. So I would go with that, sure. You know, I'm actually, I know this will sound like I'm just trying to make a point with my answer, but I'm just going to say Ursula, because there is something about the total, absolute self-confidence 
and the complete feeling herself <laughs> she emanates in every and all ways the charisma and the magnetism and all the things that ursula projects i think is one reason why we all remember her even if you only saw little mermaid once 30 years ago you remember that gal that's pretty hot to me so you heard it here first ursula is officially the hottest disney drag queen in town your marriage pact match could never from the daily northwestern i'm erica davis Thanks for listening to another episode of Pod Culture. This episode was reported and produced by me, Erica Davis, and Alana Arogetti. The audio editor of The Daily Northwestern is Alex Chun. The digital managing editors are Molly Lubers and Olivia Yarvis, and the editor-in-chief is Sneha Day. Hey.